The views and opinions expressed on Reasonably Speaking are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position of the American Law Institute or the speakers' organizations. The content presented in this broadcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. Please be advised that episodes of Reasonably Speaking explore complex and often sensitive legal topics and may contain mature content. Hello, and welcome to Coping with COVID, a podcast and video series that examines pressing issues for our courts and legal system during the time of the COVID-19 pandemic. I am David Levy, director of the Bolch Judicial Institute at Duke Law School and president of the American Law Institute. Today, we look at how our courts and judges are addressing racism and racial disparities. It is a large and complex topic and so many of our institutions are undertaking self-study and self-criticism. As we begin, let us acknowledge the horrific attack on the son and husband of one of our colleagues, U.S. District Judge Esther Salas. Our hearts go out to her. Joining me today are four wonderfully capable judges from the state and federal courts. Sherry Beasley is the Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court and a graduate of our Duke Law Master of Judicial Studies program. So she is both my chief justice and a former student. Welcome, Sherry. Goodwin Liu is an associate justice of the California Supreme Court and a member of the Council of the American Law Institute. Hello, Goodwin. Raymond Loyer is a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit and also a member of the Council of the American Law Institute. Welcome, Ray. And Charles Breyer, Chuck, we call him, is a senior district judge of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California. He served as vice chair of the U.S. Sentencing Commission from 2013 to 2017, and he is still a member of the commission. Welcome, Chuck. We go back a, a very long way. I thank all of you for joining me uh, here today. Uh, Chief Justice Beasley, let's begin with you. On June 2nd, you made a statement about the North Carolina courts and racial equity, and other courts and chief justices have followed your lead. In your statement addressing racial equity, you said, and I'm quoting, as chief justice, it is my responsibility to take ownership of the way our courts administer justice and acknowledge that we must do better. Can you expand on this point, uh, please, and, and tell us where and how the North Carolina courts must do better in assuring racial equity? You know, I think often as judges, we think that we have no role in addressing racial or gender disparities in our courts. I think often we believe that that responsibility lies with the legislature or with executive agencies. And I think we have to really rethink our role all of us as judges should see ourselves as leaders of the judicial branch of government. Uh, we run our courts every single day. And I think we have to think differently about racial disparities and see that we really do uh, have a direct responsibility to address them. Uh, that certainly our work uh, and the disposition in our cases uh, directly impact uh, the outcomes in our cases and really ought to see that we have a viable role in thinking about how to do that. I think we also should be thoughtful about having constructive conversations 
um, among ourselves as judges. And I fully acknowledge that this is very, very difficult to do. But I also think that in doing that, we have to be open to um, educating ourselves differently. I think we have to be mindful that in the very same way that we have uh, CJEs uh, around subject matter practice areas of the law, that we also have to do that around implicit bias and race, but not just race, but really the history of race in our legal system. And I think acknowledging that will um, really allow us to think differently, um, to really expound upon our own experiences and share them, um, and really offer an, a greater opportunity to um, allow greater confidence in the way we apply the rule of law in our courts. Thank you very much. Uh, Justice Liu, the, the California Supreme Court also issued a statement on racial equity and fairness uh, and did so this past June. And the statement says in part, uh, we must confront the injustices that have led millions to call for a justice system that works fairly for everyone. Each member of this court, along with the court as a whole, embraces this obligation. So uh, perhaps you could expand on that a bit and explain what the courts, what the court as a court or individual justices will be focusing on as they seek to discharge the obligation that you, that your statement identifies. Sure. Um, thank you, David. And thank you uh, for putting together this program. And it's an honor to be um, on this panel with my esteemed colleagues. Um, First, let me take the opportunity to applaud um, Chief Justice Beasley for her uh, very early statement and leadership about these issues. I think, um, um, Chief Justice Beasley, when you spoke out, you were one of the first, if not the first, um, uh, of our state court leaders to really powerfully um, capture the moment and urge us all to be better. And I think that was um, an inspiration, certainly to our court and to many other courts around the country. Um, Look, I think um, you know the the reality is that it's almost cliche. I think to talk about um, unconscious bias or structural racism or institutional inequity, um, these are almost like buzzwords today. Um, but it should not be lost upon us that when you looked out at um, the the massive protests that were happening, um, it didn't escape my notice that um, some of the um, ire was directed um, at courts and at courthouses. Um, I was just on a program the other day with um, our colleague, um, ALI member, uh, Justice Monica Marquez in um, Colorado, where she sits on the state high court. And she described uh, the protests there um, and the graffiti that was painted on her own courthouse um, and the windows that were broken in her own courthouse. Um, now, of course, none of us, I think, condone any of that behavior, uh, but it should not be lost upon us that this is not um, just a law enforcement problem, it's not a problem just for legislature, that when people talk about the system and they talk about institutional uh, racism, they are talking about the courts. Uh, we, are, we are the system, uh, and I think we have to reckon with that and come to grips with that, and I think our statement um, that our court made was partial acknowledgement of that. Now, there are many things that we have to do. I think it begins right at home uh, in small ways. Um, our own court, even before um, uh, the incidents of the past um, couple months had 
uh, begun its own diversity and inclusion committee inside the court um, to look at our own practices and help make all the members of our uh, court and staff uh, be more welcome. We have to look throughout the judiciary at implicit bias training and recommit ourselves to that. We have to have uh, a much more uh, robust access to justice agenda uh, because um, we know that uh, that set of issues disproportionately affects um, my minority and low-income communities. Um, but at the end of the day, I think what Chief Justice uh, Beasley said um, also rings true, which is that we have to examine the law. And I think that um, it's, it's, you know, we can, we can do all the implicit bias training we want, uh, but at the end of the day, what people do care about is what decisions courts make, whether it's sentencing decisions, whether it's how we define the doctrine of uh, racial discrimination, all of these things, I think, have to be um, on the table, in a sense, for examination um, if we are going to understand why it is that so many millions of people, not just in this country, but even throughout the world, responded so powerfully to the idea that the justice system is not quite living up to its aspiration of equal justice under law. Thank you. Uh it's, it's so interesting. We're going to come back to some of the, the points that uh, the two of you made in our more general discussion. Uh, Judge uh, Loyer, uh, you've, you've been involved in some of the educational programs for judges, so we're shifting gears here a little bit. Uh, the Federal Judicial Center has quite a good uh, educational program for, for federal judges. What, what would you say? I know this is hard to answer in a very short period of time, but what do you think judges need to know or do, and how should they talk to one another about race um, uh, at, in their conferences and in their opinions? Uh, that, that is a, a difficult question, uh, but before I start, I also want to thank you, David, for putting together this terrific panel. I'm really honored. Uh, and I want to thank my fellow um, colleagues on the panel for everything that they've already said and, and done in this important um, space. And it's just an incredibly important and timely conversation. So a few, uh, let me just give you a, a little bit of background um, on the educational programs that I've been involved in with the Federal Judicial Center, the FJC. So a few years ago, um, then Chief Judge Ted McKee of the Third Circuit and I were visiting the National Museum of African-American History and Culture in Washington, DC. And for those of you who have not visited uh, that museum, you should. Uh, it's just a magnificent uh, and deeply, deeply moving uh, experience to go through the, uh, the museum. You can't do it all in one day, but everyone should try to do that. Uh, and in part, I say that because uh, it um, really provides you with a, a much better understanding. And I say this as an African-American, a much better understanding of the history of people of African descent in the United States, and perhaps more importantly, how fundamentally integral that history is to the US, to, to United States history, to American history. And you can't really de-link those two things, those, stories uh, are deeply, deeply embedded uh, in each other. Uh, and as you go through the museum, as we went through the museum, it was a number of federal judges who were there for a conference, uh, and you see the, um, uh, the, the, this, this movement from despair to triumph, from slavery to freedom, 
uh, from uh, really forms of evil to forms of grace uh, uh, throughout our history, our shared history. It made me and Judge McKee think that the experience should be an experience that every new federal judge has. So we approached the Federal Judicial Center, uh, Jeremy Fogel, uh, at that point, uh, and uh, counseled them, and I, it didn't take a lot of uh, advice, uh, to uh, make a visit to the museum a component of baby judges school for new judge, federal judges. Uh, and then thereafter, to have a panel discussion uh, uh, on race and about race, uh, to which all new federal judges would be invited. Uh, and of course, as you may know, David, uh, as a former federal judge, and uh, uh, Chuck, you probably also know, once you suggest something in the federal judiciary, you sort of own it. So I was asked to participate uh, in the first panel discussion. And it was a, just such a memorable uh, experience uh, with a panel of um, judges, including myself, and it was a racially diverse uh, panel, roughly racially diverse group of judges in the audience, and we had a frank conversation about race. And I gathered from the conversation that that was the first time that a number of judges in the audience had had a frank conversation about race, not just in the legal context, but in the personal lived experiences that we all have uh, in, in connection with race. Um, you know, I, I remember talking about my own uh, experiences uh, professionally and personally uh, as an African-American man and um, telling everybody that yeah, here I am a Second Circuit Court judge, but um, the very first thing I guarantee you that people will see when they see me or notice when they see me is that I'm a black male. Uh, and we move on, and then we move on from, from there. So, so I, I do think that we should expand what's been done with uh, baby judges school and the new judges uh, at the federal level to all judges. Now, I will also say that th there are other opportunities for um, educating ourselves as federal judges, as state court judges on this issue of race. Um, and there are other venues. Uh, and we can um, talk, for example, about judicial conferences uh, that at the federal level we have on a yearly or by year, every two years. Uh, we can talk about um, other avenues uh, for um, a discussion about bias, implicit or otherwise. Um, uh, but those are all things that I've explored with my uh, colleagues. One other area uh, that I think is important and shouldn't be um, forgotten is just the everyday interactions that we have as judges. Um, uh, with each other um, as a group on an individual one-on-one -on -one basis at voting conferences uh, or in the context of board of judges meetings where we can talk about um, issues. And again, these are uncomfortable conversations sometimes, uh, but I think that um, there's, there's space there to, uh, to have these discussions. I think that's, uh, that's such a great idea. And I, I, I'm sh I think you'll agree with me that uh, maybe this is, reflects my Ninth Circuit background, but we're not only we're not just talking about African Americans. We have uh, we have so many different racial groups, uh, 
tribes and others with such with such interesting stories to tell who've had uh, uh, different kinds of adversity and uh, and find themselves in different circumstances that uh, there's this it's a very very rich uh, and interesting topic and important uh, to context and how we understand the world around us which is very important for judges uh, Chuck uh, you've you've been on the sentencing commission now for several years and when I looked up the commission today I see that most of the positions are vacant but you you still have survived and uh, which is wonderful for the for the courts um, but there's something disturbing that's been happening um, way back when when I was a judge uh, Cliff Wallace at the Ninth Circuit asked me to 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 chair the Ninth Circuit Task Force on, on Race and Religious Fairness in the Courts. And we did a study of sentencing, and we did not find racial uh, disparity. But at that time, the guidelines were being applied very rigorously. And of course, there, there are reasons why judges didn't like the, the way in which the guidelines were applying. And over time, uh, the courts have loosened, uh, have increased the discretion that judges have under the guidelines following the, the Booker opinion by the United States Supreme Court. And the U.S. Sentencing Commission now sees racial disparity in federal sentences. And in a 2017 report, the commission found that black defendants accused of the same offenses and with the same aggravating and mitigating factors received heavier sentences than white defendants. And I think most troubling for judges, this is a quote, uh, the report found that black male offenders were 21.2% less likely than white male offenders to receive a non-government sponsored downward departure or variance. Uh, so that would be a, a downward departure based on the judge's own uh, assessment of the, of the defendant. How should we think about this and how should we address it? Well, uh, first, David, let me thank you for uh, putting together this panel. The uh, I, I think that I, I was sort of looking for silver linings. I think we all are in this terrible time of the pandemic. But one small silver lining has been that it's given us unparalleled opportunity to think, uh, sort of think in an uninterrupted way. And I and a number of my colleagues have been thinking about this issue and in large part uh, prompted by the protest movement. I must say that that, that, that has piqued my conscience and my sort of sense of self-satisfaction, which I think a lot of us, a lot of judges have, which is as long as I'm fair, as long as I, I apply the law uh, uh, equitably, uh, that's what I can do. That's my job and that's what I can do. And what it does uh, is, while that's true, uh, assuming you can address the issues, the implicit bias or unacknowledged bias, as long as you can do that, yes, you can try to be as fair as you are. But that doesn't mean that the system is fair. And the protests that we have seen, the uh, uh, attack on the court, courthouses in particular, is really a wake-up call uh, for all of us because as judges, we think, we, we try to embody the institutional concerns of being fair, and I think we've fallen far short of that. So then the question is, well, why? How has that happened? 
And you go to, to one area that I know a little bit about, the Sentencing Commission, and I take a look at uh, what, how has that law developed and has it developed in a way that's fair across the board. So the idea of the Sentencing Reform Act in 1984 was a simple idea. It was that a defendant who is situated in a particular way, committing a particular federal crime, uh, should be sentenced the same way, uh, whether he, he or she is in Omaha, Nebraska, or San Francisco, California, or Miami, Florida. It shouldn't make a difference as to sentencing. And so the sentencing guidelines were designed in a way uh, to try to reduce sentencing disparities. Congress at the same time told us, look, you can't consider things like what, what we would call the socioeconomic factors of an individual. You can't consider a person's race. You can't consider a person's uh, education. You can't consider a person's job prospects. Uh, all you consider are these particular factors. And as a result, sentencings at the time that you took a look at it, David, uh, were reasonably, reasonably uh, uniform. Not completely, but, but uh, primarily uniform. Then the sentencing guidelines became uh, elective, that is advisory. And judges at this point now can take into account all of those factors. And as a matter of fact, they arguably, they have to under, under, the, under the law. Uh, they have to take a look at the history and characteristics of the offender. So suddenly you have back into the mix all of those factors uh, that you thought you didn't have to consider. Well, the problem is, the real problem is that, of course, those factors are uh, uh, racially based. Uh, or sociologically based. That is to say, a, a, uh, a white person will have, on the average, uh, perhaps a better education, perhaps uh, better job prospects, perhaps greater family support. And so that person is given a more favorable treatment than an individual who does not have those advantages. So as a result, the disparities become even greater uh, when you when you uh, uh, look at the uh, look at sentencing. Uh, when this report came out, I will tell you that the reaction of the members of the commission and the reaction of my colleagues was remarkable, because each person said, "Oh, I'm not a racist. What are they talking about? These statistics must be wrong. There must be something." inaccurate in the gathering of these statistics, or it's about the other person. It's not about judge me, it's about judge X, or it's about uh, judges in, in, in this region, not judges in that region. Well, the answer is no. The statistics are correct. And what they embody is really the sociological uh, experiences and makeup of our country. That is to say that the racism that is, that is part of this society is then institutionalized in the sentencing guidelines. Let me give you a, an example, really a concrete example of what I mean. Everyone agrees, when I say everyone, that means like I and 
few of my colleagues agree, uh, that, uh, that criminal history, a person's record, rap sheet, is an indication of how dangerous that person is or whether that person is likely to recidivate. A person who has, who has a high criminal history has obviously recidivated uh, more frequently than a person with a lower one. That's just logic. Okay, so you say, ah, I want to take that into account. And indeed, the guidelines do take that into account. What person who has a, a small record, person who has a large record, will be sentenced differently under the guidelines. So you take a look at it and you say, there, that's a perfectly fair application. And there's a principle. The problem is that when you take a look at the experience, as an example of African-Americans, they are far more likely to be arrested and prosecuted than the white person. In, in a particular neighborhood. It's just the experience of America. And, and so that person will in all likelihood have a higher criminal history. And then you apply the guidelines of the higher criminal history and that person will get a more severe sentence. So uh, what this is to me is a, as I've said, uh, a call to take a look at these and look at these factors and go beyond behind the statistics and try to figure out why are these statistics showing what they are showing? Because clearly they're showing uh, uh, the factor of race uh, is being considered in connection with sentencing. Thank you, Chuck. That, that was extremely interesting. It's not clear how to exactly how to address that, but I think the point that you make, and I, I'd like to put this out here to our panel generally, is that the courts are quite dependent on decisions that other agencies and parts of government make. Uh, we might draw a bit of an analogy between the 2017 Sentencing Commission report and the 2014, I think it was, report of the Department of Justice about Ferguson, which was such, I think, a wake-up call, particularly for the chief justices around the, the country, that the courts are being used the state courts as revenue collection agencies for many of our municipalities and that this has horrible disparate impacts on minority communities and it's extremely regressive and it created a, a, a very difficult situation in Ferguson where the minority community had entirely lost confidence in its courts. So whether it's through uh, evictions, or it's through these fees and fines that are imposed on minor petty offenses, or whether it is federal sentencing, things that in the abstract are objective and non-racial have, uh, when they're translated through the system, they have these disparate racial effects. And the public, understandably, is uh, at, the, at the end of this process, there's a judge saying to a defendant or uh, you owe X amount, or you are going to jail if you don't pay it, or you get this sentence, or you get that sentence. And this is what, what people experience. They experience this as a decision of the courts. How do the courts, um, in a sense, declare their independence or push back on some of these decisions which they can't actually make, um, but which they also um, are uh, defined by? And I'll just throw that out there. Maybe Sherry, you could you could take the first crack at this because I know the Conference of Chief Justices has been extremely concerned about 
uh, what happened in Ferguson and what continues to happen around the country in terms of fees and fines. You know, part of what I heard Chuck say is that uh, the process does not begin with sentencing, uh, that there's a whole process before uh, you get that far. And what happens to Johnny at the point that he is uh, stopped or picked up makes a whole lot of difference. If Johnny is in a grocery store and takes a candy bar, what happens after that can very well determine what's, what Johnny's future even looks like. You know, Johnny is under the age of 16 and Johnny is taken home to his parents, scolded, he did a bad thing, um, and then they move on and disciplined and that's, that's, that's one path. Uh, but the other path that Johnny might take, depending on his race, might be that Johnny goes to juvenile detention and then that's a, a whole nother process. And the um, outcome for Johnny, if Johnny goes to juvenile detention is very different than the outcome for Johnny. Johnny's parents pick him up from the police station or the police drop, drop, drop him off at home. disparities around fines and fees, you know, in North Carolina, uh, uh, roughly almost 60% of the people who show up in state courts um, come as self-represented litigants, um, which means a whole host of things for these people um, as they're trying to navigate through the court system. Uh, certainly, we have some uh, self-help forms, and we are about to start a website that will look a whole lot like sort of TurboTax, which will allow a self-represented lit litigants to go online, answer some questions, and help them to plug some simple pleadings in some of the cases that come before our court. But, you know, North Carolina is the ninth most populous state in the nation. Uh, we have a population of roughly 10 million. We have about a million people whose driver's licenses are revoked, not because they um, in some way have committed a, a crime, but it's because they were not able to pay the initial, initial fines and fees assessed by the court, those fines and fees snowball. And it's not uncommon for people's driver's licenses to be revoked 10 and 15 years down the road. You and I take for granted what a driver's license means, but you know what a barrier that can be in people's lives if they are not able to drive illegally. One of the things we've done is we've got uh, quite a few driver's license restoration programs, uh, but that's a lot of folks um, who've not committed a crime, who had an initial charge of speeding, uh, couldn't pay the fine of $200 on the cost of court, which is another $250. And, and to ask somebody to cough up $450, $500 at a time is a lot. Um, and so the other piece around economic justice and racial and gender justice really does bear ability to pay. I mean, you know, the Supreme Court of the United States has told us as judges, we should be asking about ability to pay um, and making uh, serious inquiries about that. And I think in great uh, measure, as we talk about um, restorative justice and, and as we talk about um, ways to make sure that judges are making the kind of inquiries that they really should, um, so much of understanding the backstory um, and, 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 and while the sentencing guidelines aren't the same as the federal, certainly the state system, we do have them in North Carolina. Um, and, and, and judges do have some leeway. But the reality is there are some guidelines that just are not in writing. Uh, when the 
uh, party or the defendant. And often when we think about justice, we think about criminal justice, but I think we have to think about civil justice and juvenile justice and family justice. And But often when the person walks into court, how they appear, um, how are they dressed? Uh, do they come with uh, a pocket of cash because they don't use traditional banking systems like many of us do? Um, who do they come with? Do they come with a clergy person or or other family support systems? Or do they come by themselves? Um, are they appearing before the judge in, a, in, a, in an orange jumpsuit or, 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 or prison attire as opposed to a, a suit and a tie? Um, many of the kind of conventional things that we think about in terms of what success uh, and, and forward thinking people should look like. So the other piece of that is we have to be careful about the way we impose our own judgments around what people look like, think like, what their success paths uh, might might be like. But fines and fees are real. And you know, North Carolina has several urban areas, but it's also quite a rural state. And um, uh, the socioeconomic conditions are real in terms of how we think about the imposition of fines and fees and whether or not people really have the ability to pay. And I think that probably also leads us to the uh, bail bond system as well. Anyone else on this topic? Good one. I, I'd like to add another example um, uh, in addition to fines and fees and, and what uh, Chuck said about sentencing. Um, a few years ago, uh, a case came to our court uh, challenging the um, DNA uh, Collection uh, Act that um, exists in California, which um, authorizes law enforcement to collect DNA immediately upon any felony arrest. Um, this is a issue that is an echo of the Maryland versus King decision by the US Supreme Court a few years before the case in our court. The California law differed in a few ways from the Maryland law. Um, most notably, it permitted this collection of DNA before any um, judicial determination or neutral determination that the arrest was valid and supported by probable cause. So uh, even in the field or at booking, the DNA can be collected. Now, um, our court upheld this act um, on a four to three decision. I was in the dissent and I, I won't get into the legal points of the dissent because that's not really my point. My point is when you look at the statistics underlying um, who can have their DNA collected, it turns out that in California, um, about one in five felony arrests result in no prosecution and uh, almost one in three result in no conviction of any kind. Um, and so what that means is that the state, right, has authorized um, a sort of overcollection, in my view, uh, of people who are situated um, really no differently than an innocent citizen at the end of the day. And yet all of that DNA um, uh, sits in a repository and there are expungement provisions and the like, but it turns out that uh, the, the expungement is not automatic and anybody who wants to get expunged has to fill out a form. Well, anytime you require someone to kind of take a step like that, it's gonna be minimally utilized because people don't know how to do it. They don't know how to access it. And quite honestly, it's quite easy to do but if you look at the actual rates at which expungement occurs, it's very, very low. And so what is the net effect of this? 
Well, it turns out that African-Americans are about 6% or 7% of the California population. They are about 20% of the felony arrestees in California. Um, and of those uh, African-Americans who are arrested, um, they are disproportionately released without prosecution or conviction. So what that means is that there is a disproportionate policing going on uh, of, uh, of this population um, as a result of such laws that basically then create us almost like what I would argue is something like a surveillance, um, a, a surveillance mechanism, which in a sense is also sort of a windfall for the state because as uh, Chuck said about arrest histories and whatnot, there are these disproportionate arrests and that they disproportionately arrest people who don't result in a prosecution or a conviction, right? So um, these are the kinds of ways I think that, um, you know, on the face, facially neutral laws bake in um, a certain kind of systemic inequality that you can sort of, you know, quite tangibly track when you follow the numbers, you know, from the beginning to the end. And then it's no accident that, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, police like judges, you know, turn to where the information is and uh, the disproportionate policing of certain communities is a, has a sort of snowballing effect as a result. Ray or Chuck, any thoughts on this, uh, this interrelationship between the courts and other agencies of government and how the court's uh, reputation can be, uh, reputation for fairness, which is so important, can be affected. Uh, uh, so let me just right. say one thing very briefly, which is, I think that part of our jobs uh, as judges is to educate uh, the other branches, uh, legislators, about the effects or the impact of certain uh, laws, statutes, and so on. Um, and, you know, that's, of course, another uh, component uh, of um, uh, legislation uh, that we should think about when we think about uh, race uh, and different groups of people on both the civil side and criminal side, but particularly on the civil side, having access to our courts uh, around the country. Uh, but we are, uh, we've got a responsibility uh, institutionally and sometimes as individual judges to uh, educate uh, our friends uh, and others who are in the legislative business, as well as these uh, um, other uh, law enforcement agencies, frankly. Um, not just through our opinions, but in other ways. Chuck, anything further? Uh, really mindful of the disparate impact uh, that whatever we do as judges uh, has uh, on, on the communities that are, that are before us. I think that there's a, a strong movement to uh, re-examine the length of, of, of sentences, that, uh, that a longer sentence uh, doesn't necessarily uh, result in a safer community. Uh, and there are a number of studies that, that demonstrate that. Nevertheless, the, the, uh, Congress has pointed to the fact that they've enacted this uh, legislation called the First Step Act. And the First Step Act, among other things, and it does some very good things, by the way, but I don't want to talk about those. I want to talk about something else. But it talks about, uh, uh, it speaks to the issue of early release from sentences. And it says that we should take a look at risk assessment, uh, the Bureau of Prisons should, and then those people who are less likely uh, to, uh, to recidivate should be released. So you'd say, oh, well, that's a good idea. 
That's a fine idea. Let's take a look at that. And you see that the factors that are going to be considered are the ones that I, I, I said the last time, education, family support, and so forth. So suddenly, the First Step Act becomes what I call the White Collar Relief Act. And uh, if you've committed a white collar offense, I promise you, you'll, you stand a much better chance of uh, being released from prison uh, th than, uh, than the person who has not. The drug offender, the addict, the person who doesn't have the family support. And who are those? Well, uh, uh, they are the communities who are the, who are the disadvantaged communities. So then you might say, all right, so what? Uh, but the so what is so important. Because the so what is that when you see that white, uh, white collar offenders are released, uh, minorities are not, they have to serve the full sentence, you understand how a certain degree of cynicism is furthered or nurtured and distrust of the judicial system uh, occurs as a result of what we do. And so I, I you know, I, I, I become more of the, uh, from the school of, I understand justice is blindfolded, but you know, you can take a peek and one of the peaks under that uh, blindfold, maybe what is it that you do? Uh, and what impact does it have on the community? Because I think we would all say as judges, it's important to understand the disproportionate impact of whatever we do in terms of sentencing. It's crucial, and it's crucial to the acceptance of justice as being an appropriate remedy or institution uh, in administering our civil society. So I'm, I applaud what Ray has done. I think that, that uh, he's absolutely right. Well, we've, we've kind of talked about this already, but maybe um, we can be as concrete as possible. What steps can judges take and courthouses take to assure minority community members and others that the courts, and poor people generally, that the courts uh, are attempting to be fair and, and equitable and that uh, uh, we, they hope, they, they, well, they can do better, that they hope that they, they instill confidence in people um, in their desire for, for justice. What, what should judges be doing? Anyone? So l let me just uh, point out uh, three things that I think are uh, important, but just steps, as, as you point out. Uh, I don't know that there is a full panacea to fully ensure true widespread public confidence uh, across communities of color and other communities uh, in, in this country, but um, I do think that the diversity of uh, judicial decision-making, that is, of judges, uh, makes a, a difference. Obviously, at the federal level, uh, the executive is the appointing authority for Article Three judges, but there are magistrate judges. Uh, there are um, bankruptcy judges. Uh, there are um, any number of members of the judicial staff in a courthouse uh, in the clerk's office uh, which is, you know, th that is the, those are the people that the public will see in the first instance. And I think that uh, at least hiring or appointing those people with an eye to uh, diversity might help to enhance public confidence uh, in the judiciary uh, at the federal level and presumably also at the uh, state level. I think that forms of civic education are critical. 
Um, you know, we've only just started in the last few years at the federal level to really engage in civic education to try to educate the public about what it is that the courts do and perhaps just as importantly, what it is that the courts don't do or can't do um, a, as a way of enhancing public confidence and understanding uh, 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 in, in the courts and, and about the courts. Uh, the third thing I would say as part of the civic education program is bringing people in, making it easier for uh, people from different communities to come into the courthouses. Uh, to see what we actually do uh, and being a little bit more transparent about what we do. Uh, and I'm not saying at the circuit level, for example, making our, you know, televising our voting conferences, but uh, letting it be known publicly that uh, the, the, these courthouses, courtrooms are, are public uh, and people should come in and be able to see the business of the courts um, uh, happening in real time. Uh, and I think that all three of those things are helpful. I also think that we need to be a little bit careful about our language when it comes to race, in particular, in our opinions and in our speeches. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, write or say things uh, with some level of sensitivity to uh, the history of race along many different metrics uh, in our country. Thank you. I see Goodwin. Yes. That was well said. Um, I would add three things. Um, one is um, I would underscore what Ray said about um, diversity in the judiciary itself and in the judicial branch. Um, our state bar actually this week just released a big report about the makeup of the profession here in California. And, you know, um, I think it's fair to say that uh, the profession as a whole is a kind of um, lagging indicator of society because uh, people have long careers and long tenures and the people who are lawyers today are not um, necessarily reflective of the society that is coming up behind them. And um, this applies doubly so for judges who have very long tenures. Um, and um, so we'll always be a little step behind. It also extends to uh, who we hire inside the courts. Um, as Ray knows, um, uh, Jeremy Fogel and I have been um, involved in an ongoing study of um, diversity in uh, law clerk, law clerk hiring, which has been super interesting. Um, he and I are interviewing um, 40 uh, federal circuit judges to better understand what are some of the obstacles to um, getting more um, minority clerks um, into uh, the highest rungs of, of the um, judiciary. That's been a basically flat line for uh, Black, Latino, and even Asian uh, applicants, despite the increasing numbers of those groups at the top schools over the past uh, two decades. So uh, understanding that is really important. I think secondly, um, there is a very public facing role that judges can play. And it's an uncomfortable one because I think judges are used to having a bit of separation from society. I remember when I was first appointed to the bench. Um, the joke of it was that, you know, I never got any phone calls anymore and the email kind of dried up and, um, you know, I was sitting in my chambers wondering where did the world go? And I think, you know, the, the profession and your friends and, and uh, the outside world respects, I think, that separation. But that, mean, that just means that judges, I think, have to take the first step to extend the hand outward uh, to say, you know, I'm listening, I'm interested. I'm engaged. 
Um, I want to hear what people have to say, you know, what Chuck said. I want to hear about experience. I don't want to just sit and write, you know, in my chambers um, as if it were all an abstraction, right? And so I, I think this is, um, you know, different judges have different sensibilities about this, but I think we can all do more uh, to have a slightly more public facing role to outreach, especially to those communities that feel uh, less well served and more unequally served by the justice system. And the third thing I'd say is um, that I think judges do have a very big role in agenda setting. And this goes back to something Ray said a second ago about education. You know, you can sort of take the phrase, if you say if you see something, say something, right? Um, into how we do things, uh, even in our judicial opinions. There are a lot of cases, I'm sure we encounter them every day where the law is what it is and there's not a whole lot we can do um, even when we see something unjust or uh, misguided as a matter of policy. Well, I don't think it's outside the judicial role at all to uh, write a separate opinion or to write a paragraph uh, that says, you know what, this may need to be re-examined uh, because I've just looked at a case, right, that has these facts and I've looked at uh, the data that has these facts and this is how it has been playing out. And the relevant policymakers, or in some cases, the judges upstairs, you know, who, who write you know, higher law than we do, uh, may need to uh, take a second look at some of these things. Um, I'll give you an example. I've been very concerned about uh, racial discrimination in jury selection for my entire time on the bench. I've written uh, more than I wanna say about um, that issue. And I think finally, actually, that issue is getting some traction. In California, there's legislation that's being proposed to rework the whole framework of how um, that discrimination is ferreted out. Um, the, our own court apport, appointed um, a jury selection work group to examine all phases of jury selection. Um, so, you know, it takes time and persistence, but I think judges have a very important role. Um, in setting the agenda. And, um, you know, we do see a lot. So if we see something, we should say something. Anyone else on, on this no, topic? I, I of would just add, add to uh, what Goodwin has said. Uh, I think judges have a continuing responsibility to educate, to educate themselves and to educate the public that comes before them. Uh, we have, uh, uh, since I've been a judge, oh, uh, a long time, but uh, in the beginning, we did very little in terms of uh, educating jurors about their task. It was a really sort of vanilla operation. Can you be fair? Can you, can you, uh, uh, you know, administer justice fairly? Any reason why you can't sit on a jury? Now, we have a video uh, that incorporates a whole section on implicit bias with examples of implicit bias that a juror can see. And, and who knows? Does that, does that work? Is it, is it what we think, at least uh, uh, like Judge Chen, who's led the effort in, in, uh, in our uh, court uh, and other judges all across the country, it tells a jury, a juror, to be alert to these problems. Are you gonna change a juror's mind? Are you going to change a judge's mind? I have no idea. Maybe and maybe not, but the problem is, You've got to alert them. People have to know. Judges have to know. We have to know. We have to see the impact of what we do, and we have to take factor in our experiences. So I, I would echo what uh, my colleagues have said, because I think that that is a hope for the future. 
Uh, Sherry, many of the people that listen to this uh, podcast and video will be lawyers and not judges. And I'm wondering, what what would you ask them to do? Because uh, so much of what uh, so much of of what can happen for the good will happen because members of the bar decide that they want to help the courts. So, what what would you say to to our friends in the bar uh, as to what they can do for the courts? You know, um, all of us um, as lawyers and as judges really are guardians of the rule of law and of our courts. And, you know, when we think about what happens in our courts, we often, um, we know what's happening. And so the people who come before the court, they're told, go here, do this, fill this form out. And I'm not sure that they always really understand why they're being asked to do what they're being asked to do what the consequences could possibly be around, around filling out forms. Um, often we don't have um, forms translated um, in languages other than English. Um, and, 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 you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, by the way, um, it, it, which is also compounded by heightened racial, racial tensions across this nation. And this is an amazing time um, for all of us to feel a sense of empowerment that even though we are faced with challenges, all of us, and certainly those that we serve, um, this is an amazing opportunity for lawyers to lead. And uh, in all the ways that, that we see that there are uh, concerns and issues in our respective courts and courts across the nation, lawyers certainly see the same kinds of things. And it does take courage to lead. But if you think about every single difficult period in this nation's history, lawyers have been at the foundation of fortifying change. And so I'm excited about the opportunity for lawyers and for judges to think differently about where we are. Um, I'm excited about the opportunity to really provide access to justice and to make sure that people who come before our courts at least understand the process. Um, it's hard to have justice and this elusive thing we call justice if people don't even understand what is happening to them when they come to our courts. And so it's incumbent upon all of us, lawyers and judges, to make sure that that happens, whether it's through procedural fairness. It's, and I also think that in the same way that Goodwin talked about making sure people see us outside of our courts um, in, in sort of non-traditional judicial roles. You know, we've just started a Faith and Justice Alliance in North Carolina. We've been working on it for over a year, but what an amazing time to have the intersection between faith and justice and law. We've got uh, places of worship of all denominations um, across the state and clergy working with lawyers to provide pro bono services for those on the civil, who have civil unmet legal needs. So it's an exciting time to think differently about how we do our work. It's an exciting time to think about how lawyers and judges can, can, can partner with community um, groups around making sure that people are having their needs met. And I think often we think about justice happening inside of our courtrooms. But I think if you think about the fact that in North Carolina, one in five children is hungry, that really is an access to justice issue. If you think about how we deal with uh, delinquency in our court, in, in our schools. Um, there are wonderful opportunities, and, and you all know that North Carolina was the last state in the nation to raise the age. And so we're really excited also about our school justice partnerships. 
uh, to make sure that there are alternate ways to, to, to really support young people to think about why they might be misbehaving in school, not to criminalize that behavior, but to ask questions around hunger and, and stability and other kinds of conditions around home and community. I mean, all of us have the capacity to do that. Uh, does it take us a stretch for us to, to think differently and frankly, to think outside of our own circumstances? Um, it does, but that's okay. I mean, this is a really wonderful opportunity for us to, to, to challenge ourselves and to push ourselves to do that. Well, I think you gave such a good closing there, uh, Sherry, that everybody is nodding their head and they agree with it. It is, uh, uh, as in so many ways, uh, it's a time of adversity, but that also means it's a time of opportunity. Uh, thank you all so, uh, so much for taking your precious time to talk with us today. We all share the goal of a justice system that is fair and equitable and accessible to all Americans. And we're so fortunate to have the four of you as leaders in our courts and to help us um, reach that goal, aspire to that goal. This is ongoing work. Uh, it will never be finished. Every generation will have to renew this struggle and um, this aspiration. And I hope you will let us all know how we can help you in this important work. This has been Coping with COVID, a podcast and video series produced by the American Law Institute and the Bolch Judicial Institute at Duke Law School. I am David Levy. Thank you for joining us here today. Thank you for tuning in to Reasonably Speaking. Visit ALI.org to learn more about this important topic and our speakers. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Reasonably Speaking is produced by the American Law Institute with audio engineering by Kathleen Morton and digital editing by Sarah Ferrero. And I'm Sean Kellum.